there's so many. I, I love the fact that we can just celebrate with young and old. I mean, there's just reasons to, give, to testify. Look what God has done. Look what God is going to do. And we just get to keep giving report after report of what God is doing. And you know what? If you're sitting there going, yeah, I actually kind of want to be on the, the, the driver's seat there, then let's pray together. And whatever ministry that you're feeling burdened about, how can we come alongside you and equip you? I know you just sat down. This is stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. And now I'm going to ask you, please stand back up. This isn't just to keep you awake, but it's in part. Now, actually, as I kind of shared weeks ago, um, you know, as, as I get an opportunity to observe just different ways that people do things, you know, as they gather in church services, one of the... Uh, observations I've made that, I, that really just kind of stuck with me is that we worship God not just by our ears, not just by our mouths, but also by our posture. And our posture matters. You know, we're not just kind of lazing on the lazy boy kind of thing, just going, yeah, okay, go ahead, God, speak to me. No, we want to worship him through our posture. And so I'm going to read our text here this morning, and we're going to stand together, and I would encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 together. And so you can listen, or you can read along with me. I'm reading in the ESV version. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Heavenly Father, right now, we just ask that by your Spirit, you would speak to us very clearly. I pray that what is heard this morning would not be my words, but your words. And I pray that I would be a faithful conduit of your words. Jesus, we acknowledge, just even as Peter acknowledged, that you have the words of eternal life. And our greatest need is to hear from our Creator and our Savior. So, Father, speak to us this morning. Perhaps you have already spoken to us, but speak to us even now through the preaching of your word. And may we walk away knowing that we've heard from you. And may we walk away with the intention and the motivation to follow through with what you've revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me ask you a question. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? 
actually kind of alluded to this about a year ago. Uh, in the philosophical world or the world of philosophy, there's this little fancy word that is called epistemology. Epistemology. Let me just break that down for you because it's helpful to understand because words are oftentimes compound words and there's different combinations put together that have different meanings. So epistemology, episteme means knowledge and ology means the study of. So epistemology is the study of knowledge, specifically the study of how we know things. Now you might be thinking like, man, that sounds like a very dry, dry pursuit. But the fact is, all of us have a certain degree of knowledge. All of us know certain things, and we've all come to know certain things through a variety of deductive methods. For example, one way in which we know certain things is through personal experience. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. Uh, One uh, truth or way in which we know certain things, growing up in Alaska as a young kid in the middle of winter with six months of winter and everything is frozen for months at a time, we learn firsthand that we are not an exception to the rule. And what I mean by that is this, every kid growing up in Alaska in the middle of winter realizes and comes to know that when you stick your tongue to a frozen metal object, you will lose the top layer of skin on your tongue. And every kid growing up in Alaska in the middle of winter always thinks, it's not going to happen to me. And all of us are still recovering from it. So one of the ways we know what we know is through firsthand experience. But another way in which we know what we know is possibly through tradition. You know, tradition is, is something, a truth that has been accepted as true for a very long time. Now, that doesn't mean that all tradition is true or relevant for everyone, but some of what we know can be attributed to what has been generally accepted as true for a very long time. In other words, it's kind of withheld the time test. It's like it seems to be relevant and universal in nature. And so part of what we know is through what we've learned out of tradition. Some of what we also know is through selective observation. In other words, you see what you want to see. Another uh, example of this coming from Alaska, it's hard not to, uh, in the middle of winter, again, in Alaska, we, uh, they, they usually clear-cut the sides of the highway about 50, 75 feet, and the reason they do that isn't for the landscaping and aesthetic appeal, but it's because they're trying to keep the most off the road and on the side of the road. And so in the middle of winter, we're always looking for moose, not because they're actually there, but because you just don't know when they're going to be there. And they're everywhere. And at night, when you're, when you're driving and your headlights are reflecting off all the white snow, there's lots of shadows. And guess what you're looking for? You're looking for moose. And usually every t- drive home, which is about a half hour distance from like school to home, uh, I saw about 70 or 80 moose. Not because 70 or 80 moose actually existed, but I saw what I was looking for. Now, there could be moose, but when you're driving home looking for anything that could be, it's amazing how your mind begins to say, there it is, or there it is. Not because it's actually there, but again, we see what we want to see. We see what we're looking for. That is another way in which we come to know certain things, or at least things that we think we know. Real quickly, just because I don't want to spend too much time on 
this philosophical approach, but we also come to know things through overgeneralization. For example, we, uh, we, can, we can form conclusions from limited observations and make a broad or common conclusion about that. So, for example, uh, we can make a conclusion about a certain culture based off very limited experience. Like, for example, if you were to go to Bellevue, in Bellevue, you would probably go, if you've lived there for some time or at least been there, you'd be like, wow, all Asian people are lawyers, doctors, and successful business, business owners, And although in Bellevue, many of the Asian people are successful doctors, lawyers, and business owners, that doesn't mean that all Asians are lawyers, doctors, and business owners. And when you go to like the country of, uh, you know, the the area of Asia, there's people that are also kind of like us. There's a, there's a variety, and so sometimes we can, make, we can think that, oh, this particular culture is a certain way based off our limited observations. Again, it's called overgeneralization. Sometimes we just come to know things because it feels right. It feels right, so we think it to be right. Why in the world am I talking about epistemology and how we come to know things? Because John actually addresses this in, his t- in this text. And he says, this is how you come to know what you know. This is how you know what you know. Specifically, when it comes to our salvation, and, and especially the assurance of our salvation, the question is, how do you really know that you're saved? How do you really know that your name is written in the book of life? How do you know for certain that your salvation is secure? And so John is really, he's raising this question of salvation and and especially this, this need that we have for assurance of our salvation because after all, our greatest need when it's all said and done is the certainty, is the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that we are in fact walking in right or healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it this way, the religion of I don't know is the devil's religion. The religion of I don't know is the devil's religion. But the fact is, God wants us to know. And as John uh, already testifies, he wants us to know for certain that we are, in fact, in right fellowship with God the Father. And so a couple of weeks back, you might recall that we really kind of looked at the, the theological test of assurance the theological test of assurance. In other words, you got to get it right when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to sin. You got to get it right that they're like, I'm a sinner that is only saved by grace through Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other option. We have to get that right. Next week, we're going to talk about the ethical test of assurance. And I won't blow the thunder there, but basically it comes down to this. Do I love others the way God has loved me and loves others. And this morning, we are going to dive into what we might call the moral test of assurance. The moral test of assurance. And what we're really going to kind of do here is unpack this, this what I call the take-home truth. The take-home truth for us this morning is this. Loving obedience to Christ serves as a test of both genuine faith and mature faith. 
Loving obedience to Christ serves as both a test of genuine faith and mature faith. Let's kind of break this down here, however. The first point I want to unpack or unravel for us is this. Obedience to Christ serves as a test of genuine faith. Look again at verses, verses 3 and 4 of 1 John chapter 2. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Now John tells us, or he informs us of a few different things when he says these words in verse 3 and 4. First of all, we see that John tells us that knowing God is possible. Knowing God is actually possible possible. Not a possibility of chance, but it's possible in that God wants us to know Him. He wants us to be in fellowship with Him. And the reason for this is because this is consistent with our design. God wants us to know Him and to walk in fellowship with Him because to live a life outside of fellowship with God is to live a life that is contrary to our design. We will always be unfulfilled when we live a life that is outside of fellowship with God. 100% of the time. It doesn't mean that we can't experience some aspects of joy in life, but they will always be fleeting and it will never last because you were created by God and for God to walk in fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And so, The converse is also true. To live in relationship with God is to live a life that is consistent with our created being. But there's a second thing that John informs us of, and he says this. He tells us that we can know for certain that we are truly living in fellowship with God. What does he say? He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. And how do we know that we we know him? What is true of a person who is in fellowship with God? The answer is very simple. He says, the one who keeps God's commands. Now, there's a couple interesting observations I want to kind of highlight for us this morning. The first of all is John's use of the word know. Now, we may not dwell on words as as much as we could in kind of the theological sense, but John's use of the word know is I think instructive for us because this word know or gnosko in the Greek actually means more than just mere knowledge. It's not just information, but the word, if you truly know something, then you follow through or you act on what you know. In other words, in the theological sense, to know means to obey. To know means to obey. And if you don't obey what you claim to know, then the assumption is that you don't really know what you claim to know. How easy it is, right, for us to go, oh, I know certain facts and and I know certain things about God. But the question is, how does that translate in our everyday living? Because there is an element where you can know something, but not really know it. Because if you really knew it, it would be evident in your life. There's another interesting word that John uses here. It's the one who keeps God's commandments. 
Now, it's interesting. He didn't say the one who obeys God's commands. It's the one who keeps God's commands. You might say, Aaron, are you splitting hairs here? Well, it's interesting. This word for keep uh, actually means that uh, it's, it's to guard something as one's treasure. It means to, 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 to hold something or to value something as a treasure. And so when, when John is talking about the one who keeps God's commands, what he's saying is that we are in right fellowship with God, not only because we obey his commands, but when we treasure his commands. Because what you treasure, ultimately, you follow through with. We could be obedient based on the sheer fact that God said, do it, now I must do it, or reap the consequences. That's true. But what God desires for his children is that we would treasure his commands, that we would obey them because we treasure them. What does David say in Psalm 1, the very get-go? He says, Bless is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or who stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So I want to ask you a question, just to kind of reflect on, to chew on just for just a moment. Are you a person who treasures God's commands? Would you say that you're a person who loves God's commands? Do you regard his, God's commands as something of maybe immense value or importance? Or do you regard God's commands as something you must do? There's an important perspective that you and I need to kind of come back to regularly, and I myself need to just come back to regularly, and that is this. It's the, the awareness and the understanding and the perspective that God's commands are given to us not to make your life boring, not to be a killjoy on your joy, not to place an increasingly heavy burden on your life. That's not why God gives us commands. No, quite the opposite, in fact. No, God gives us commands to live by so that we would be filled with joy, so that we would be freed from unnecessary burdens, so that, so that we would gain our life. John will even say in chapter 5 later, he says, his commands are not burdensome. God doesn't give us commands to live by to take your life, but to give you your life. As any good parent, right? As any good parent would do, you have certain rules and expectations in your home for your children, not because you hate your children, but because you love your children. You want the best for your children. You want to protect your children you don't want them to make decisions on their own because they think they know everything, right? And you as a parent who's lived a little longer and have a little more life experience, you go, no, 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 that's actually not good for you. As much as you think this is good for you, as much as my kids want to raid the snack bar 
and devour that thing before you even get to it, I got to say, no. And they don't like no. But they don't understand why at all times either. As we, as we grow and mature in our relationship with God, it's increasingly more important for us that we need to recognize that God gives us commands not because he's trying to squelch your joy, but he's trying to help you experience it more fully. It's the one who delights in the law of the Lord. That's the one who gains their life. John also tells us that the person who claims to know God or to be in fellowship with God but does not keep his commandments is a liar and does not actually have a relationship with God. In other words, you say you believe in God, but to live a life willfully contrary to what you say you believe is what the Bible calls hypocrisy. To say one thing, but to live another. One uh, long since dead pastor who is still having a lasting influence said this, A mere verbal orthodoxy is hypocrisy. Let me say that again. A mere verbal orthodoxy, in other words, a profession of right, of of truth and right theology, is hypocrisy and is more hateful to God and more hateful to man than avowed infidelity. He goes on to say, I am quite sure that a strict application of this test would empty thousands of pulpits, hundreds of professor chairs at Christian schools, and deplete thousands of church roles. But he goes on to acknowledge, this emptying and depleting would not be deplorable, but actually helpful. It would amount to a great revival. What is he getting at? We have a big talk sometimes, but the question is we have a big follow-through. We may know a lot about God, but the question, does our life reflect what we actually profess to be true? What does God want from us? As James 1.22 highlights, he says he wants us to be doers of the word, not mere hearers only. What does the prophet Samuel say? But he says, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Or what does the prophet Jeremiah say? He says, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may go well with you. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that God pursued you. He pursued you and he saved you in your disobedience. But he did not save you to remain disobedient. He saved you to obedience. He pursued you in your rebellion, but he saved you to a life of obedience, a life of of living out the commands that he's given to us, again, so that we might gain our life. He, intended, he, he really intends for us to be transformed as we have discussed earlier. 
So let me ask you this question then. If obedience to God's commands is foundational to what it means to be Christian, then why do so many professing Christians not prioritize obedience to Christ? If this is God's standard and expectation for us, then why do so many Christians have a a low view of obedience? Maybe a high view of grace, but a low view of obedience. Well, there's probably a lot of answers to that question. But I believe one reason for this, especially in Western evangelical Christianity, is because our faith has become more information rather than a faith of transformation. Let me say that again. I believe the reason why obedience does not have its proper place among the general Christendom of Western evangelicalism is because our faith has become more a faith of information rather than a faith of transformation. Now, transformation is just another word for discipleship. Yes, that great commission word, right? In Matthew chapter 28, what did Jesus say? Go and make Christians. No, he said, go and make disciples. A Christian is an identity. A disciple is a way of life. What are disciples? Men and women who have entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but who have also entered into an apprenticeship with Jesus Christ. And I believe, unfortunately, an all-too-prevalent belief in many, Western, in, in many Western evangelical circles and denominations is that they don't see themselves as disciples. I mean, I could even ask the question, do you see yourself as a disciple, even more than a Christian? Some even people think that you can be Christian without being a disciple, I appreciate uh, A.W. Tozer's um, tactful response to this idea. He says in his book, The Pursuit of God, which, by the way, is a great read if you have not yet read it, he says, A notable heresy has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need Him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to Him as Lord as long as we want to. He goes on to state that salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Dallas Willard also says something in, in a very similar way. Um, he, he, he wrote some, you know, this is just kind of an excerpt from his, one of his books, but he titles it with this question, is discipleship for super-Christians only? He says, the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Christian is found only three times and was first introduced to refer precisely to the disciples. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. But the point is not merely verbal. What is more important is the kind of life we see in the earliest church is that of a special type of person. 
All of the assurances and the benefits offered to humankind in the gospel evidently presuppose such a life and do not make realistic sense apart from it. The disciple of Jesus is not just is not the deluxe or heavy duty or super Christian. He stands on the pages of the New Testament as a first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. What is Dallas getting at? He's saying this is just basic Christianity. To be a disciple of Jesus, one who is observing all that he has commanded or being obedient to all he's commanded, this is Christianity 101. Willard goes on to say, and I think it's appropriate to highlight, he says, for the last several decades of the churches of the Western world, they have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian, and one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Contemporary American churches in particular do not require following Christ in his example, spirit, and teachings as a condition of church membership. So far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, disciple seems to clearly be optional. So what does it mean to really be Christian? I mean, we use, that, we use that, and we might even identify ourselves, yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? To be Christian, according to New Testament understanding, it means to come, to come into a lifelong apprenticeship with Jesus. To, to become a disciple of Jesus who obeys Jesus by following the example of Jesus. So on one hand, information is important, right? It's important that we have right doctrine and and good theology that is biblically informed. That's all really good for healthy Christian living. But information that does not result in transformation will only lead to spiritual stagnation at best, but possibly eternal damnation at worst. Let me just say that again. Information that doesn't ultimately result in transformation will at best only lead to spiritual stagnation, which is called backsliding, but eternal damnation most likely. After all, the demonic realm has the right information about Jesus. What does James say in James chapter 2, verse 19? Even the demons believe. And what do they do? They shudder. They have the right information, but their knowledge has not led to redemptive transformation. So we we may have this idea and then think that we're growing in our relationship with God because we're, we're learning more and more about Him, which, by the way, is really good, but you can't think your way to Christ. I love what James K.A. Smith said. Uh, By the way, if you want a good book to read, You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. There's actually a copy at the Connect Desk you can flip through. He says, you cannot think your way to Christ. It begins with the mind, but it cannot remain merely in the mind. It must, in a sense, travel the 18 inches down to our heart, proverbially, and it's something that must transform us from the inside out. So what does this look like practically? You know, 
at IBC, though we don't always say it from the pulpit as often as we probably should, but I'm going to give a little plug for it now. There's a reason why we encourage you to participate in an intentional life group. You can call it a Bible study, you can call it a small group, home group gathering, whatever it may be. There's a lot, you all have your own terms for it. But the point of coming into the context of a life group or a small group is not just so that you can be a part of a loving community. That's not the ultimate goal. It may be a good thing that you experience, but that's not the ultimate goal. We don't participate in these groups just so we can learn more about God. In other words, gathering more and more information, though that's part of what can happen or occur in the context of a life group. But let me just say this emphatically. The reason why life groups are incredibly important for all of us is because we believe that transformation is most effectively experienced in the context of other followers of Jesus who share a like-minded intent to be conformed to Jesus Christ. In other words, the ultimate goal is transformation. And if you are not experiencing transformation, then all you have is a dinner party. Nothing wrong with a dinner party. But it may not be an intentional group in which you are experiencing spiritual, spiritually empowered transformation. It's why we encourage you to ask questions when you come together in your gathering to intentionally ask questions such as this, what does this biblical truth or understanding or idea look like practically in our lives? Or how are you going to put into practice what you now know? Because in the end, we can, we can talk on the surface, but what happens oftentimes in many groups is we, we keep to the surface, but we never really fillet our heart open and go, <laughs> whoa, I need to have a follow-up this next week with so-and-so. I mean, we could even give a, most, a very practical example, working from the momentum of Celestan's sermon to us last week about forgiveness and reconciliation were you merely informed about the importance of forgiveness? Or were you showing that you have begun a process of transformation because you followed through with someone this week? Were we merely informed going, oh, that's really good for these guys? Or was it, Lord, you have spoken to me and have I responded in obedience to that person maybe that came to mind when he gave all these examples? Obedience to Christ serves as a test of genuine faith. But secondly, and more quickly, loving obedience to Christ serves as a test of mature faith. Loving obedience to Christ serves as a test of mature faith. John says in verses 5 and 6, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let me ask you a question, IBC family. When was the last time 
that the thought of the gospel made you weep. When was the last time that the thought of what God the Father did through His Son, Jesus Christ, to save you from yourself, when was the last time that made you just broken on the inside? The reason why I asked that question, not only has it been convicting for me even this past week, but I asked that because the, an- the way in which you answer that question can reveal your love for Jesus. Not necessarily your duty to Jesus, but your love for Jesus. You see, there's a direct correlation between a person's love for Jesus and therefore in turn their obedience to Jesus. What does Jesus say in John 14, 15? He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. 1 John 5, 3, loving God means keeping his commands. In other words, to know God is to, to, to fall in love with God, and as a result of falling in love with God, we, be, we in turn obey God out of love for God. It is in our, in our obedience to God that we position ourselves to receive his love, but it's, in, but it's in our obedience, which means that we are filled with the love of God. So the reason why we, we, we mature, what mature faith looks like is we, we, we obey and we follow his commands and we follow the example of Jesus because we are in love with him. And the whole inverse benefit of that is when we, when we walk into that obedient relationship with Jesus, we actually are able to remain in his love. Look at John chapter 15, the first 10 verses, 11 verses. We are able to remain in his love. And out of remaining in his love, we are filled with joy and we are filled with his presence. So we aren't obedient because we have to. We're obedient because of what we gain by it. We're obedient to Christ, ideally out of love for Christ, because this is the way in which we remain in his presence, the way he's able to speak to us and minister to us, because what greater joy there is, the scripture promises, is being continually in his presence. But we cannot remain in his presence apart from our obedience. The point is, obedience must be motivated out of genuine love for God. And it's really kind of the difference between the I have to and the I want to. You recall a very popular parable, right? The parable is the prodigal son, right? You can look at Luke chapter 15, or you can look at the Gospel of Matthew as well, but in this parable of the prodigal son, we oftentimes focus on the son who, who left home and squandered the father's wealth or his inheritance, and, and he returned home humbled and, and it was accepted by his father, right? And that's a glorious thing. We, we celebrate that. We're like, whoa, we pray for wayward children to return, right? We want them to return. We want them to follow the example of this prodigal son who went away but eventually came back. But that's actually not what this parable is about, because the parable is not about the son who left, it's about the son who stayed. It was the elder son, the son who did everything right, but not because he loved his father. He was obedient out of duty, but not out of love for his father. 
That's the whole context is the Pharisees are dialoguing with Jesus, and Jesus gives this parable to identify you are the elder brother. You're doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. You're being obedient to what God has given you to be obedient to, but you're not doing it because you love your Father in heaven. You're doing it because you have to, because you think your acceptance before God is dependent upon your performance and obedience versus being obedient from already being accepted. As Jesus points out in Matthew 6, it's very possible, probably even more common than we'd like to realize, to obey God, but to do so from a loveless obedience. Now, does that mean that we should not obey if we're not doing it out of love? No, that's not what I'm saying, and I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. We need to be obedient even if we don't feel like being obedient. But the motivation of our obedience eventually must move from an I have to to I want to motivation. That's what reveals a a mature fellowship with God. Even as the older brother was unable to recognize, right? He says, you never never slaughtered a calf for me. You never did all this partying for me. And, And the father says, what? All I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. It belongs to you. When I die, it's all going to you. And the elder brother was never able to receive that. He was never able to accept that because he did not love his father. I think, it's, I think I'm safe to say that most of us in here might struggle at least to some degree with an elder son mindset. An elder son approach to God, though, and even if we're genuinely saved and have our sins forgiven and we're, we are in, in relationship with God the Father, Perhaps your obedience is more of a I have to than I get to or I want to. Perhaps your walk of faith is more of I must versus thank you. Again, as I shared earlier, God doesn't give us commands to make our life more miserable. He gives us commands to give us our life, to save us from ourself. He does it because he loves you, and he's a perfect father. When it comes to your salvation, and specifically the assurance of your salvation, how do you really know? How do you know for certain that you are saved? John tells us one test of assurance is recognized by our obedience. We can have assurance that we are truly in fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ by His Spirit because of our obedience to the Father. Even as Jesus says in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me to do so that, here's the purpose, that the world may know that I love the Father. This is Jesus talking. I am obedient so the world knows that I love the Father. And the ultimate act of obedience for Jesus, the, the ultimate expression of agape love 
for his father was Jesus' obedience to the cross. What does Paul, the, the author of the letter of Philippians, say? Have this mindset, this thinking among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' love for his father is most fully expressed by his obedience to die on a cross so that the world would be saved through him. Heavenly Father, we we acknowledge together and we say thank you together for what great love you have extended to us. Even as Scripture tells us, though we were dead in our sins, completely helpless in our rebellion, maybe even defiant against you because you are a holy God and you're perfect in every way, and we are flawed, fallen, weak, creatures because of the the curse of sin. Father, you looked at our helpless state and you said, I love you and I will do whatever it takes to save you. So in this divine collaboration among the triunity of the Godhead, a plan was formed and implemented. And we are the recipients of that grace and that mercy. Let me just say thank you. And Father, we acknowledge that even as Scripture teaches us, we are not just saved from our sin, but we're saved to good works. We're saved to a life of obedience. We're saved to declare the excellencies of you. And one of the most practical ways in which that looks in our life is just by being obedient to the commands that you've given to us. Forgive us, Lord, for maybe holding a lesser view of obedience as if it doesn't really matter. I'm saved anyway, so it doesn't matter. Father, we can't have assurance when we have a low view of obedience. But we also acknowledge the fact that we fall short every day. So thank you for the invitation that we can come to you and confess our sin before you at every moment, and you never tire of it. In fact, you eagerly await it so that we can resume that fellowship, not because it takes away our sonship or our daughtership necessarily, but it, it restores that fellowship and that intimacy and that joy. It allows us to remain in your love. Father, if if there's anybody in this room right now who struggles to understand your love for them, we ask that your spirit would invade their life right now. I pray that they would begin to understand how much and what great lengths you went to show 
your love for them. I know that we're all learning and growing in that area. But we're thankful that you never give up on us. Be with us as we get ready to depart here, Father, as we go on to whatever plans that we might have orchestrated prior to coming here. But we ask, Lord, that we would continue to chew on those things that you have given to us. And may we not be just mere hearers only, but may we follow through in obedience. We ask these things in your precious and your holy name. Amen. Thank you.